Welcome to the Looking for Shiprock. I'm Lynn Wilcox, and today we're talking about the people of Death Valley. This is part two of the segment. Decades before the Americans found gold at Sutter's Mill, it was the Spanish who first intruded upon the quiet of the indigenous Death Valley people. Spanish explorers and missionaries had traveled through this area in 1776. Much later, around 1830, traders traveled through Death Valley on the long trip from Los Angeles to Santa Fe. This was the Death Valley Indians' first contact with those outsiders. It was also their introduction to the horse. In the years that followed, hundreds of thousands of horses came east this way, some purchased, some stolen from the ranches near the coast. Early on, the route that passed south of Death Valley was known as the Spanish Trail from Los Angeles to Santa Fe. Later, with the cutoff through Utah to Salt Lake City, it became the Mormon Road, used by the church to expand its territory into California. The road added many miles of harsh desert travel to the trek to the gold fields, so the 49ers didn't use it until it was too late in the year to risk crossing the Sierras. This was just a couple years after the Donner Party met their disaster in the snowbound Sierras, so late arrivals knew they had to either wait till the snow melted or travel south to the Mormon Road. In the fall of 1849, a group that was waiting in Salt Lake heard enough about the Mormon Road to decide to give it a try. They became what history and legend knows as the lost 49er wagon train. It was actually more than one train, some of the travelers were made it through just fine without major problems by staying on the old Spanish trail. Most, however, did not. The trail was long and hard by horseback. By wagon, it was virtually impossible. No wagon road had ever been cut where they were trying to go. It was so hard that most of the wagon trains that came south from Utah turned around and returned to Salt Lake before reaching Death Valley. The largest group, the San Joaquin Company, later the members called themselves the Sand Walking Company, was led by Jefferson Hunt, who'd been up and down the trail before, but had little experience leading a wagon train. With four to five hundred people, more than a hundred wagons, and a thousand cattle and oxen, there was a lot of discord and problems from the very start. The worst problems began when some of the group decided to try a shortcut through Death Valley. The train quickly broke down into at least a dozen separate groups. Some of these groups were disbanded, and by the time the leaders were leaving the Spanish trail to find Death Valley, the train was scattered more than 200 miles along the trail. It was early November of 1849 when the first members of the San Joaquin Company descended into the valley. By then, they were disorganized groups of exhausted men, women, and children. They lost their wagons and belongings along the way and nearly starved to death in the process. Following disparate routes, all of them gradually realized that the Panamint Mountains were a wall that would stop their westward progress. There was no good way out that direction. Most eventually made their way back to the old Spanish trail to follow the path of those hundreds of thousands of horses. The Death Valley Indians rescued some. Others died. Two of the pioneers, Lewis Manley and John Rogers, were traveling with a group of about 30, including three families. With this group was Les Newsbomber, 
a German immigrant who recorded his experiences in a journal which surfaced about a hundred years later. This journal gives a glimpse into the horrible conditions that they endured during that long journey. He wrote that on December 24th, 12 miles, our prospects again look dismal. One of our oxen is about to die, but we will not despair on the eve of the day when our Savior was born. We came about 15 miles today through abominable alkali swamps and were compelled to camp without water and grass. In fact, we had to go back quite a distance to get water for our supper. Well, they slowly wandered south from Furnace Creek along the base of the Panamint Mountains. At a point of final desperation in mid-January, Manley and Rogers decided to go ahead to get help from the California settlements. These two men made the difficult journey to the settlements, then immediately turned around to ride back and rescue the families that were relying on them. It was mid-February when they finally returned to find the families, who had almost given up any hope of ever seeing them again. The ragtag group found its way out, and one of the men, it isn't known which, looked back at the barren expanse and said, Goodbye, Death Valley thus given this remarkable place its modern name. The natives of the valley had watched the settlers, helped them when they could, and were well aware that the suffering of these strange invaders. George Hamlin said, As they go, they drop things all along the trail. Maybe they are worthless things, too heavy to carry. By and by, they, they went away. All go over the Panamints, and we never see them again. The hearts of our people were heavy for these strange people. Though it was a rabble, the 49ers were a tough but undisciplined group. They were caught up in the frenzy of gold lust. This frenzy is a consuming fever that keeps them hunting for gold and silver, even while they were staring death in the face in the barren desert. At least two of the lost 49er groups actually found gold and silver. Ironically, the first gold is found by a couple of Mormon missionaries who are on their way to the South Seas. Another group found silver, lots of silver, in an almost pure state, pieces that were enticingly large and pure. One 49er carried a chunk out with him and later had it hammered into a gun sight for his rifle, thus creating the legend of the lost gun sight mine a story that sent thousands of prospectors onto the Mojave in later years. Some of the lost 49ers swore they'd never return to this godforsaken desert, no matter how much gold was there. But when the gold rush faded away in the Sierras, the prospectors made their way to the desert. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, tens of thousands of prospectors, now called rainbow seekers, came to dig in the ground, build towns and railroads, and take the wealth of the land away. But except for a few exceptional cases, the finds were short-lived, or they cost far more to develop than they could ever return. By the 1920s, there were few mines and few miners left on the Mojave. Now, Death Valley has some hotels and highways and airstrip, and even golf courses. But beyond the few settlements, the wilderness remains. The mines and camps tell stories of men and women that are long gone. Men and women who tried but usually failed to remove the mineral wealth had a profit. The 
cost of transportation, lack of water, they were the real enemies of the miners. These problems could not be overcome and a profit made. That really didn't keep them from trying in dozens of camps and thousands of mines around the desert. But the land rests peacefully now, recovering from the onslaught of those miners and gold seekers who left when they learned it was just not cost-effective to remove most of the minerals that they found. Death Valley now, it's a national park, protects the land from further development. This status protects the land, but it also completed the job the Rainbow Seekers began. The Timbesha, Shoshone, and other tribes who had lived here in harmony for hundreds or perhaps thousands of years were fully dispossessed at first when the Park Service took charge of the land. They were allowed to live on a 40-acre parcel in the desert, but they couldn't hunt or forage for the pinyons and mesquite beans that were the mainstays in their diet in the old days. This finally changed in 1999 with an agreement that returned some 7,000 acres of land to them. It also gave them rights to share in the management of the 300,000-acre Timbesha Natural and Cultural Preservation Area, where the land will be managed as it was by their forefathers. I guess the land has finally gone full circle. I'm Len Wilcox, and that's Looking for Shiprock. Thanks for listening. Drop by our website at lookingforshiprock.com. We'll have new pictures up and different stories. You're welcome to come take a look around.